So today we are continuing our series on John, and we're looking at chapter 5. Can you see the screen from there? There we go. Is that better? Splendid. Um, I am Phil. I'm married to the rather mad Fiona, who's lovely. Uh, This is probably a bit loud, so it could come down a bit. Um, I'm not going to bother with a big preamble because we've heard lots about John already. Um, I'd encourage you, if you missed any of the sermons, to hit the website and pull them down via the podcast. Um, Also, and just as importantly, if you haven't listened or read John, the first five chapters, in one sitting recently, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, If you don't like reading, audio Bibles are excellent. I use them all the time, and I'm a a big, big fan, and there's lots around. Um, That allows you to get the overarching narrative, because we're digging into the detail. You sometimes miss the big picture. So just a reminder to go and uh, get the overall thing. And... This morning, again, to try and keep it fresh, I'm using a slightly different translation. There's one called The Voice. Ooh. It doesn't have chairs and people spinning around. And it's not heretical. Well, you can tell me afterwards if it is. Um, so what we're going to do is go through the passage in that translation, and then I'll step through the verses one by one. Um, in order to keep it fresh, it's probably useful if you read the words on the screen or you just listen, and then you can pull out your... Bible of choice to follow along later. Um, I'd also like to take the chance to thank the technical team. We've had some issues this morning. Uh, They serve faithfully week after week. And uh, if anyone fancies serving and can use a computer or carry cables or plug them in, then speak to me. We'd love to have your help. So without further ado, let's jump into the passage. When these events were completed, Jesus led his followers to Jerusalem, where they would celebrate a Jewish feast together. In Jerusalem, they came upon a pool by the Sheep Gate, surrounded by five covered porches. In Hebrew, this place is called Bethesda. Crowds of people lined the area, lying around the porches. All of these people were disabled in some way. Some were blind, lame, paralyzed, or plagued by diseases, and they were waiting for the waters to move. From time to time, a heavenly messenger would come to stir the water in the pool. Whoever reached the water first and got in it after it was agitated would be healed of his or her disease. In the crowd, Jesus noticed one particular man who'd been living with his disability for 38 years. He knew this man had been waiting there for a long time. Jesus, are you here in this place hoping to be healed? Disabled man. Kind sir, I wait like all of these people for the waters to stir, but I cannot walk. If I'm to be healed in the waters, someone must carry me into the pool. Without a helping hand, someone else beats me to the water's edge each time it's stirred. Jesus, stand up, carry your mat, and walk. At the moment Jesus uttered these words, a healing energy coursed through the man and returned life to his limbs. He stood and walked for the first time in 38 years. But this was the Sabbath day, and any work, including carrying a mat, was prohibited on this day. Jewish leaders, must you be reminded that it's a Sabbath? You're not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to carry a mat today, formerly disabled man. The man who healed me gave me specific instructions to carry my mat and go. Jewish leaders, who's the man who gave you these instructions How can we identify him? The man genuinely did not know who it was that healed him. In the midst of the crowd and the excitement of his renewed health, Jesus had slipped away. 
Sometime later, Jesus found him in the temple and again spoke to him. Take a look at your body. It's been made whole and strong. So avoid a life of sin or else a calamity greater than any disability may befall you. The man went immediately to tell the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the mysterious healer. So they began pursuing and attacking Jesus because he performed these miracles on the Sabbath. Jesus. My father is at work, so I too am working. He was justifying the importance of his work on the Sabbath, claiming God as his father in ways that suggested he was equal to God. These pious religious leaders sought an opportunity to kill Jesus, and these words fueled their hatred. Excellent. So we've made it to the end of the passage. I could just sit down now, but I'm going to force you to listen to some more. I'm just cruel. So those of you who are observant will have noticed I get the easy job of talking both about healing and Sabbath which is a great joy, particularly as this weekend has not been a great weekend for me to talk about healing. As well as doing my collarbone in a few months ago, I've been fighting off a gastric bug. So it was touch and go whether I'd be here this morning. And if I leave halfway through, you'll know that the healing is mm, not quite complete. It's the now and the not yet, and I stand before you as a visible <laughs> reminder. So there we are. Um, so I know that healing can sometimes be difficult, and we've probably all heard both helpful and unhelpful teaching about the subject. So I thought we could start with a wee story just to settle some nerves so people don't get too nervous. A devout Christian couple felt it important to own an equally devout Christian pet. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad the two at the front are enjoying this already. <laughs> So they went shopping. At a kennel specializing in this particular breed, they found a dog they liked quite a lot. When they asked the dog to fetch the Bible, he did it in a flash. When they instructed him to look up Psalm 23, he complied equally fast, using his paws with amazing dexterity. They were impressed, as you would be. They purchased the animal and they went home, piously, of course. That night they had friends over. They were so proud of their new evangelical dog and his skills, they called the dog and showed off a little. Their friends were impressed and asked whether the dog was able to do any of the usual dog tricks as well. This stopped the couple cold as they hadn't thought of this. Well, they said, we could try. Once more, they called out to the dog and then clearly pronounced the command, heal! Quick as a flash, <laughs> the dog jumped up, put his paw on the man's forehead, closed his eyes and started to pray. I know. Some of you are way ahead of me there. <laughs> of course, the funniest thing about that joke is that the dog closed his eyes while praying for another person. Should be following the five-step prayer model. I did jokingly refer to the five-step healing model. If you want to know more, there's leaflets at the back. Or it's also on the, um, uh, what are they called? Vineyard Churches UK website. Um, anyway. This might be a good time to pull out your mobile phone with a Bible app of your choice, or if you're really old school, maybe the paper copy, and have a look at the passage again. So we're going to start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start. So verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says there was a feast. Um, John was usually quite specific, but here he doesn't give us any clues. All we know is a feast, and it was a feast that people had to go to because there were lots of people there. Um, also note that um, this festival included food. This was corporate worship, but it also included food. I just thought that was worth noting. 
Um, before I joined this church, I used to be of the opinion that social occasions were a complete waste of time, and actually real Christians just did Bible studies and nothing else. I've slowly changed my views, and now I'm probably on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> so there we go. So the account of the healing of the pool of Bethesda is only found in John's Gospel. It was originally thought to be a metaphorical pool, but an archaeological dig um, found evidence of it, and it's now in what's uh, the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. And it contains two pools covered with a shelter. Uh, I then discovered lots of interesting debate about what the names of the pool actually were, depending on which source you went with and what the translation would be and what those names meant. That was all terribly, terribly interesting, uh, but I didn't think it was completely relevant to this morning. So what I've done is I've dumped it in a document. If you're really terribly keen, you can pull that document with the podcast from the website after this. Um, it sounds grand, but it's basically I put a document together of all the bits that I thought were good, and my wife said, no, take those out. <laughs> so all the good stuff that's um, not quite relevant is, is in the appendix. So having skipped over uh, the arguments about names, all I wanted to pull from this is there was a pool, people used to go there for healing, and there was a man there in need. So let's move on to verses 4 to 9. Um, probably the first thing to note here is that some translations have a verse 4, others don't. What on earth is going on there, you might well ask. Well, the voice that I read originally had it. Uh, ESV that we're using now doesn't. Uh, the reason for that is that um, this verse was probably in the form of textual criticism. So later... Um, sources included it, earlier sources tended not to. We're not quite sure of that. Um, but R.C. Sproul seemed to suggest that because it was not in some of the earlier manuscripts, it might just have been a comment by a scholar to explain what the prevailing thought was at the time. So he's trying to explain the belief at the time was that people believed angels came and stirred the water and you got healed. Um, Colin Cruz, in his commentary, um, uh, started talking about some of the translations. Uh, the NIV in particular um, in... Uh, where are we? When Jesus saw him... Sorry, I've lost my thread already. That's always a good start. Um, Jesus learning that he'd been in this condition for a long time. Um, the, the word learnt there is better translated as knew. So Jesus knew that the man had been there a long time. So this was a, a, a word of knowledge. Uh, this was supernatural. Uh, this was Jesus being inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, to do a work of miracle. Um, similar to the way that in chapter 1 of John we saw Nathaniel, and Jesus spoke to him and said, I saw you under the fig tree. And then uh, just last week, the Samaritan woman by the well, again Jesus said, oh, you don't have a husband. But um, Yeah, so it, it's the same deal. This time it's not just to break open a conversation, it's to give a, an opportunity for a miracle. Um, if you want to know more about that or you want to practice or you want to get better at it home groups are the obvious place to do it so again the board at the back has pictures of people who are leading home groups if you're not in one you're missing out church on a Sunday is lovely but it's not the whole deal um, so find a home group go and practice and it's okay to make mistakes <coughs> in home groups particularly with words of knowledge I had a classic one many years ago where um, we were quietly praying and being very very spiritual and one chap said, um, I've got a picture. It's of a sheep in a rowing boat. 
<laughs> and as far as we could tell, the purpose of that word was to make us all laugh very, very much. I still don't know what the interpretation was. So you have my blessing to make a fool of yourself. We're all learning together. Uh, where was I? Okay, next slide. Um, I'm not much of an arty-farty type, but I did uh, have a wee look on Tinterweb for um, interpretations of artists of this scene. Uh, so this is by a chap called Murillo, um, and then the next one I have here is from Hogarth. In both cases, they look, um, they look amazing, but I do wonder if they perhaps sanitize the scene. When I read this story, I imagine it as some sort of a pretty horrific place, actually. Lots of invalids lying around with no hope. Um, yeah, I, I imagine it closer to, I don't know, a DOS house or you know, an area under the bridge where homeless people sleep and there's lots of addiction and smell and noise and all the stuff that makes our, our middle-class sensibilities get offended. Um, so once again, Jesus was going to a place where the nice people did not go. Um, and he was also helping somebody who the rest of society just said, oh, well, you just have to beg for the rest of your life. Looking back at the passage, the question that Jesus asks, um, do you want to be healed, in verse 6, seems a bit strange. It almost seems a little callous. You know, why would you say that? Of course he wants to be healed. Um, R.C. Sproul again suggested that, although John doesn't, uh, doesn't tell us, um, it could be that the man might have just settled for not being healed. He's been in this condition for 38 years. It might just have been easier to come to grips with it and say, well, this is my lot in life. Um, alternatively, it might have been a sanity check. Jesus might have been checking before doing anything because healing would have caused this man's life to be turned upside down. Probably for all his life, we don't know, but probably all his life, he'd been without work, he'd been relying on other people, and all he knew was begging. Suddenly, if he was healed, he'd have to go and find a skill, get a job, earn money, you know, feed himself, all these life skills that would be completely alien. Um, to quote Sproul again, he said, uh, maybe being better represented a threat that he cannot handle. Um, and some of the other commentators I read kind of agreed with this view. It was a really life-changing experience, and therefore it was appropriate just to check before starting. The man's answer suggests that he just wanted somebody to lift him up and carry him, which is perfectly reasonable. Um, uh, the, the thing that I took from this was that it's okay for us not to understand everything that Jesus does. If we come to him with honesty, then he responds, even if we don't understand. We don't need a deep theological understanding of everything that he does. We just need a deep hunger. In verse 8, uh, note Jesus spoke in imperatives. We don't know if this was all he said, but it might well have been. This was the sum total of his healing prayer, get up. I think, wow, that's quite terse. Um, yeah, I, it's a challenge to me. I'm not very good at praying for healing. I find it difficult, particularly because it doesn't always happen. Um, but it's, it's a nice uh, reminder of how Jesus did it. And the other reminder here is that the man had to do something about it. He didn't just continue lying there. He had to actually exercise some faith and also exercise muscles that hadn't been used for an awfully long time and potentially make a complete idiot of himself. Because if he hadn't walked for 38 years, I think in the natural he'd be quite unlikely to be able to walk now. So he had to stand up and pick up this stretcher made of a frame with a bed of reeds or something on it. So he wasn't just standing up, he was also carrying a load. So it was a big deal. Um, next section. Um, so there's been an amazing miracle. You might think lots of people came to Jesus and said, that's amazing, what else can you do? 
No, the Jewish leaders came and told him off. I was going to quote Monty Python, but I'll avoid the, uh, the, the temptation. Um, they missed the point. You know, they were so worried about some minor rule about the Sabbath, they missed an amazing miracle in their midst. So I looked into the, the rule about Sabbath because not being Jewish and not being brought up with that tradition, I sometimes find some of these a bit archaic. In this case, there's nothing in the scripture in the Old Testament that forbade uh, carrying loads. This was uh, the rabbis had decided to define what work entailed in 39 different ways and in one of those ways based on a very, very strange and probably bad interpretation of a passage in Nehemiah, they pulled out that you shouldn't carry a load on Sabbath. In fact, the passage in Nehemiah was talking about trading, and probably the underlying message was you shouldn't trade on a Sabbath. But there we go. So Jesus doesn't enter into a discussion with the, uh, the Jewish leaders. If I was him, I'd have probably said, well, your interpretation is flawed, and here's why, and had a good old Barney. He doesn't do any of that. He valued the Sabbath, but he valued people above regulations and process. And then he just slips away. And in verse 12, the man's asked who it was who healed him. Um, it's a good question to ask, but I don't think the Jewish leaders were asking it because they actually wanted to know who Jesus was and they wanted to follow him. The context seems to make it pretty clear. They wanted to know who healed him and who gave him permission so they could stone him. Um, yeah, the man didn't know who Jesus was at this stage, which is fair enough. Um, however, later, if we look at verse 14 and then onwards, uh, he met Jesus again in the temple. Now, one of the commentators commented on this. Commentators commented. There we go. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> one of the chaps I read uh, commented that at the temple at this time, if it was one of the mandatory festivals, there would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of people in and around the temple. For Jesus to just happen to stumble across this guy again might well have been another instance of the Holy Spirit leading him. We don't know, but it's just a thought. So what did Jesus do? Well, he told him to stop his lifestyle of sin. Um, the, the thing that sort of grabs me from this is that uh, as, soon as, as soon as the man spoke to Jesus again, he just wandered off to the authorities. It's, it's quite a sad story, I think. This guy not only had an amazing miracle, but he met, <laughs> he met the Messiah, and then he just ran off to the Jewish leaders. So again, I, I had a wee look into what people thought might have happened here. Um, some of the commentaries pulled out uh, similarities with the man born blind, which comes later on in John in chapter 9. Uh, but in that case, the chap who was healed testified that Jesus was a prophet. Then the woman at the well from last week, if you remember that, uh, she didn't just run off to the Jewish authorities and said, Jesus is a naughty boy. Um, she, sorry, we, we snuck it in. She went running to tell the whole town what had happened. Um, so R.C. Sproul, again, um, seemed to suggest that the man might be, uh, might be blaming Jesus for telling him to walk. You know, I'm only walking because he told me to. I'm only breaking the Sabbath because I was told to. It seems to be quite a defensive tone in his, his, his chat to the, to the Jewish leaders, so that's possible. Um, and it does ring some similarities with the, uh, the Garden of Eden. 
you know, the blame game that starts very early on. Oh, well, it's the woman you gave me who told me to do it. And the woman says, oh, well, it's that serpent you put in the garden. Um, or maybe he was embarrassed to give glory to God and he just blamed him. A uh, question for, for me, at least from this, is how do I react to being blessed? Am I faithful? Um, and more importantly than that, am I only being faithful because of the blessings I've just had or am I faithful because of the blessings I've already received? You know, we, we should continue being faithful even if we're going through a period of not seeing any blessing. William Barclay, who's a, 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 um, a favorite of mine just because he writes very, very simple language. So you look at it and say, yeah, I understand that. Um, he argued that the man may not have been deliberately trying to get Jesus in trouble. He didn't go back to the authorities to say, eh, it was him. Uh, he went back to the authorities because he knew that they were going to be after him. And he was probably facing a death sentence at that time. So William Barclay was a little more generous to the guy. As is often the case, we don't know for sure. All we know is uh, it's, a, it's a challenge for us, and we should look at our own hearts, how we react to God. Um, it, it's easy when you see something like this for us as Christians to, to despise the man, to say, well, he should have known better. He should have treated Jesus better. Um, Rodney Whittaker, on another commentary, um, said that... Uh, in God's love for this character, uh, who's actually a bit of a Judas figure, we see the full picture of God's love because it's a love that excludes no one. If Jesus had been given words of knowledge for this guy, he might well have been given a word of knowledge to know how he's going to react as well. And he went ahead and did it anyway. Now, in verse 17, Jesus' defense is quite an interesting one. Sabbath was God's idea. Uh, it was very clearly put down in the Old Testament. All good Jews knew about it and practiced it. And he, in fact, God himself, modeled it by resting on the seventh day from his work of creation. But what Jesus is saying here is that God didn't stop working. He stopped his work of creation, but he continues all the time doing his work of judgment, mercy, compassion, and love. Um, another uh, phrase that, that sprung to mind when I was looking at that in more detail is that... Um, you know, elsewhere we see uh, poetic phrases about God um, holding the stars in space and, you know, giving us the breath to breathe day by day and all these kinds of things. So what all Jesus was saying there was that your, guy, your, your, your um, interpretation of Sabbath is a little bit flawed. Yes, God stopped creating on the seventh day. And yes, it's a good thing for us to stop working. But God continues to do things all the time and particularly works in compassion. He doesn't let what day it is, stop him. Um, F.B. Mayer uh, put it like this. He, Jesus, said that God was working through his life and had energized him to perform that miracle of healing. It was not his own deed, but the Father's in him and through him. If then they condemned it, they were in direct collision with the infinite one from whom the Sabbath law had originally come. Very eloquent quote. Um, and puts it quite well. It's certainly hard to argue with, and what struck me is that um, maybe the, uh, the, the hostility from the Jewish leaders was partly because they had a fixed idea about Sabbath. Some upstart was coming along telling them their interpretation was wrong, um, and maybe they got angry just because they were being corrected publicly. Um, maybe they were also feeling threatened. If their interpretation about this one minor law was wrong, then what about other laws? Suddenly they weren't keepers of the law anymore and people would 
perhaps not respect them and maybe they'd lose their position in society. All of this might be true, but again, we don't know for sure. Um, it's just what struck me that the, uh, the Jewish leaders, again, it's very easy to, to make them the baddies in the story. Uh, but you just look at them and say there's very human reactions there. And again, when I'm feeling threatened or somebody corrects me or I lose an argument, what's my immediate reaction? It's usually not good. Um, so I've deliberately rattled through that. Um, if it's too fast, uh, the podcast will be available. I'm going to move on and try and pull out some threads and some conclusions now, and then we'll have plenty of time for prayer ministry. So how can we apply all this to our lives? Uh, how does this make a difference to us now? So when we think about healing, first of all, we should be compassionate like Jesus. He wasn't so overwhelmed by the need that he just ran away. There were probably many people there who needed healing. It would have been quite a, an intimidating place. But he just went to the man who had been placed on his heart. God had spoken to him and said, that guy needs healing. He didn't worry about the rest. Um, so I think that's quite a good lesson for us. Uh, we live in a world that's fallen and broken, and there's tons of need. And it's very, very easy for us to just say, it's all too hard, I can't cope. But uh, Jesus just listened to what the Father was saying and acted on it. Um, and then I found, uh, well, actually, I didn't find. It was in the course that we'd recently completed called the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Course. Um, uh, I won't talk about the course, but there was a very good quote from Mother Teresa in there, um, which I thought was very, very relevant to this. So she said, I never look the masses as my responsibility. I look only at the individual. I can love only one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time. Just one, one, one. You get closer to Christ by coming closer to each other. As Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do it to me. So you begin, I begin. I picked up one person. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean. But if we don't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you, same thing in your family, same thing in the church where you go. Just begin, one, one, one. At the end of our lives, we will not be judged by how many diplomas we have received, how much money we have made, or how many great things we have done. We will be judged by, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you took me in. When I read that, that was a real challenge to me. Uh, I'm quite academic, and I like studying, and it's all too easy to start justifying who you are based on what you've achieved. This is a really good reminder that actually God doesn't really care about your degree. Sorry to break it to you. He cares about you. And, yeah, there we go. So closer to home, we have storehouse as well. Um, uh, Fiona and, and others help in storehouse. And all too often, I judge how successful it's been by how many bags you've given out, how many people turned up, you know, these kind of metrics. But actually, if you speak to folks who've been in the drop-in days, the bits that really take root are those people who've come in. It's those personal stories where people have, have had a difference, have, have seen a difference in their lives. So that's a challenge to me. I'm program-centered. I'm not people-centered. And it's a really good reminder that actually... God needs to continue to change my heart to help me to be um, more focused on the individual and less on numbers. So we should pray for healing. We should speak to the infirmity. 
we might as well address the elephant in the room. Why does healing not always happen? So at least for me, this is what I felt the Holy Spirit leading me to. I was reminded that in other parts of life, uh, one of the, the sort of common nuggets of wisdom or argued about nuggets of wisdom, depending on which side of the academic fence you fall, is that to do anything with any level of uh, expertise, it requires at least 10,000 hours of practice. So you need to be good at it, and then you need to practice for 10,000 hours. Now, I thought about praying for healing and thought, I'm pretty sure I haven't prayed 10,000 times for healing. Therefore, there's probably scope for me to improve. So hear me out. I'm not saying that practice makes perfect. I'm not saying that practice makes you better at healing. God heals, we don't. What I do think is true is practice helps us to remember both to offer prayer when somebody's in need and also um, to ask for it ourselves. Um, we're, I don't know, I think it's probably our culture. We're not very good at saying, hey, I need prayer. Um, I'm feeling you know, ill, whatever the illness is. That's not often our first reaction. Also, the other big area where practice helps us is it helps us to be sensitive. With practice, we'll have seen different situations. We'll have seen the, the joy of a, a glorious, instantaneous healing. That's great. But we'll probably also have seen those situations where we've prayed and nothing's happened. That helps us to be sensitive with each other. The one thing about healing that really gets my goat is people simplifying it and saying, I understand sovereign God, and therefore I'm going to say, if you've not been healed, it's either my lack of faith when I'm praying for you, or your lack of faith, or even worse, a hidden sin. Now, those are all true, but God's sovereign, and he does stuff, and we don't always understand it. So I'd much rather have a looser theology of healing and say, God's able to or not. What I do know is, um, I've noticed, this is very profound, he seems to heal less when I don't ask. So... The lesson here is God might not always heal, but we should be asking. What about Sabbath then? Sabbath is not a law, but a gift. It's an opportunity for fun and rest with God being an integral part of it. We should work towards an intentional, planned routine where a 24-hour period is set apart. But um, I thought it was important to be honest here. It's a road, it's a journey, and some of us aren't very good at it, and I'm firmly in that camp. I um, tend to be quite active I like to serve in church. Finding a 24-hour period where I'm doing nothing has proved a challenge. So for me, I'm aiming for a few hours of quality time when I'm not doing anything. Um, like, I don't look at me emails, and I deliberately spend time with the kids, and I deliberately do stuff that normally I would say, hmm, I should be doing something useful. Um, Sabbath is a, uh, is a chance to halt the tyranny of the I ought to or I should do. So some of you might have that inner monologue all the time. Oh, I should do that. Oh, I really should finish the dishes. I should do this. I ought to do that. Sabbath is the time when you say, that's for later. Uh, I'll just skip over that stuff. Um, I don't think our culture helps either. Uh, one, of the, one of the first things we do when we meet somebody new is we say, oh, what do you do? Or in the student context, what are you studying? As if somehow we're defined by our job, or somehow we're defined by what we're studying. It's just not true. Um, 
And uh, one of the things that's happened to me um, in the last couple of months, I came off my bike, smashed my collarbone up, and suddenly couldn't do all the things that I usually do, like go to work, drive, um, pick a book up, do any help around the house, anything useful in my mind. And uh, through that, God's really taught me an awful lot about where I get my self-worth from. I, I tend to, in the natural, get my self-worth from doing stuff and achieving things. And God says, that's fine, achieving things is okay, but that's not who you are. And he doesn't value you just for what you've done. And I thought that was probably a word for some people here today. Um, God cares about who you are, not about what you achieve. And Sabbath is the chance when you just put all those oughts to one side and just enjoy. So, as I've said, I've kept this sermon, oh, not as short as I meant to. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, we're going to have a time of prayer ministry now. So obviously, if you need healing, come up and ask for it. Um, it might be for something else. But also, if you don't have a need at all and you're just hungry for more of God, that's perfectly reasonable. That's a really good thing to come up to the front for and ask for prayer. The minister in our previous church used to tell this story, which was quite good. He was a fan of going to um, a church overseas in, in Canada and getting prayer you know, once a year as a sort of retreat, if you like. Um, and he was at a conference, and they kept getting prophetic words that were more and more specific, and he kept ignoring them and going down to the front. And he said, it didn't matter. Even if they called one-legged nuns to come forward, I was still there asking for prayer, and I quite like that. So come forward for prayer, even if you're not a one-legged nun.